0: I I ran my Roomba today, and I actually ran it twice because I had forgotten and haven't done it in a while. And uh, <laughs> after emptying that bin a couple times, I now feel
1: like the grossest of human beings. Every time I think of a Roomba, I think of that security robot that drove into a pool and drowned itself. <laughs>
0: I just imagine it going back to its little docking station, and as it pulls in, it just lets out a sigh, and it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> Well, hello, designers and designer. You are listening to the Drunken UX podcast. This is episode number thirty-five.
1: You mean thirty-four?
0: Uh, well, it it, it is 35. Um, I updated one title, not the other one when I copied the the (laughs) files. I've it's, you know what? This is what we call a good problem to have, right? That we've now (laughs) done enough episodes that it's starting to get confusing as to which number we're on if we don't check. So um, (laughs) I'm, I'm all right with that. So let's see. Uh, How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm one of the hosts of the show. Uh, If you haven't heard us before or this is your first time listening to us, my name is Michael Feenan.
1: Hello, Michael. My name is Aaron Hill. I'm also hosting the show. It's nice to meet you. We
0: we enjoy Aaron's <laughs> presence. He is a a light of our life, and <laughs> I, he sits in his room. I I get to watch him in these uh, in these chats, and I can see all of his kids' pictures hanging up behind him. And
1: uh, yeah, so some of those are from them. Some of them are pages I've colored.
0: And oh wait, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I color stuff. I like adult coloring, or grown-up coloring books, not adult coloring books. That's a different kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've they, so, I've only got one thing on my wall back behind me, and you'd commented on this before, because you, you've seen it in the background, but you never knew what it was. Yeah. Um, I don't have a kid, so I don't have drawings or anything, but I do have a uh, Judas Priest record that is uh, right. Sad Wings of Destiny, and so that's framed and up on my wall.
1: It's funny, you posted a photo of your desk on Twitter the other day, and that was the first time I had ever seen the other side of your room before. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like connecting the dots like, oh okay, wait, I know where that corner is and that corner. I have an accent wall.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh folks, episode number thirty five of the Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends over at New Cloud. They do interactive maps, uh illustrations. They have a whole platform that you can embed stuff on your site. Go check them out if you're looking for anything interactive map related for whether it's a school, city Hospital. Uh, I'm sure, they would nice. do a theme park or your backyard if you really wanted to. Really big haunted house. Really big haunted house. Sure, uh, there's one up in Kansas City that's like two haunted houses side by side. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it's like supposed to be one of the best ones in the country. I don't know. I've I've been there nice. at one point.
1: So, so you just get scared half to death on one side, and then the other side they finish the job. Yeah, hopefully.
0: Um, <laughs> and that's the one you go into, and like you don't get to come out of unless you uh, right. sign a release and all this, and
1: <laughs> they literally murder you. Yeah.
0: So, uh, if you want to check us out, go by either uh, Instagram at Drunken UX Podcast, or you can catch us on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX. Uh, If you want to chat with us at some point, um, feel free to drop into Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack, and that'll get you right in, and uh, we would love to sit and have a chat with you at any point.
1: Um, Hello to Virginia de Guzman, who has recently joined the chat room and has been talking to us. So, when you finally get up to this episode, hi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how far in she is yet, so maybe a few hours. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I also want to, before we get into everything else, I did want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Mike Henderson. Um, we always say, you know, if we get something wrong to let us know, uh, and Mike, uh, sent us a message on Twitter and we were talking about, um, accessibility in color palettes mm. with Gutenberg. And I made the comment that they didn't have a contrast checking on the color palette selector. Right. Uh, that is in fact not true and hasn't been for quite a while as it turns out. Uh,
1: <laughs> Oh, no. I am just
0: dumb on that, and that's all that amounts <laughs> to. So, uh, shout out to Mike for uh, calling us out on that, and I did want to issue a public statement because I don't want to—I don't want the folks at, at, at WordPress to be angry at us uh, and all of that because <laughs> I didn't want to misrepresent them. So, they do—if you go in and, and I and play with their color palettes—and I was looking at it, it does pop up a thing that um, if you select two colors, it will warn you that it has potential contrast issues. So. That that is, in fact, a solved problem on that front. Well done, WordPress. Well done, WordPress. Uh, Whether you like Gutenberg or not,
1: they did that part. (laughs) What are you drinking? I got, uh, I've got some Stoli crushed pineapple vodka with a splash of orange juice in it. It's not bad.
0: I used to love Stoli. Um, I do. I mean, I don't not like Stoli. Um, But... I definitely, when they started putting out like all the flavors, that was kind of one of those moments. It was like, yeah, not so sure.
1: <laughs> it's like you don't you
0: don't see gray goose cherry, you know.
1: The Stolichnys flavored and we're obviously not sponsored by Stoli, but their uh, their flavored vodkas I think are the the better or best of the flavored vodkas. Like I don't like Absolutes flavored vodkas. I love their marketing, and their regular vodka is fine, but like. The flavored vodkas just don't sit. Well.
0: It's the the flavored stuff is all always ends up coming out really
1: sugary. Yeah, it's
0: it's kind of like they and I mean it really is. It's just grain alcohol and Kool Aid.
1: When I used to serve tables, um, our bar manager would always say like, if someone ever orders a mudslide, upsell them on getting stoly vanilla uh, in it. It was just you know a dollar or two upcharge, um, because it's really it makes it taste better because the. And it really does too. I mean, it's it's subtle, but but it's yeah. good.
0: And I yeah, I can see that. That's probably fair. I'm old enough now that it's like I don't do much flavored. <laughs> like, but, and like a uh, the the one thing I'll have uh, is, and I've had it on the show, of course, is the gingerbread which has fireball in it. And it's like yeah, I I, I won't. Good. I'm not gonna shoot fireball or something. That's just <laughs> that's humiliating. Let's just be. Let's face it, but and it does it's it there's so much sugar in it that it, it just yeah. uh is not good but as like a component to something mm-hmm. i i can see it and same with the flavored vodkas like if you just want something sweet and flavored uh then go for it but uh i'm i'm past the age of shooting any of that <laughs> that's for darn sure uh I, <laughs> what do you got i'm over here with my bowmore 12 i've said many times i'm not a big fan of isla scotches but Beaumore is not bad. Uh, it's still strong, and I took a sip of it to get started here, and it definitely <laughs> it still has a, a good little sock in the mouth. Um, but it's it's still generous in its flavor, like it's not overpowering, and it's definitely not like a Laphroaig or an Ardbeg that have just this really like it doesn't it doesn't have that iodine flavor that comes from the peat. It's It's got a, a smoky flavor that stands kind of apart and on its
1: own. So, a couple episodes ago, you listeners probably don't know, but we had to do a whole bunch of retakes and a whole bunch of pauses. Hey, now. Cause the Because Scot- the Scotch was kicking your ass. Hey.
0: that's, <laughs> that is uh, a patented lie. <laughs>
1: I don't know what uh, he's talking about. I I think that was, I think that was one of those things where you were, you thought you were more drunk than you were. Um... Or maybe it was just like the alcohol was making the difficult to connect thoughts. I've definitely had a couple episodes where, with guests, where my um, I just kind of zone out and I'm like, wait, what are we talking about?
0: <laughs> hey, these are the risks we run. Uh, I can't, I can't say anything more than that. That's what makes it fun. That's why I hope you, you tune in. Uh, speaking of, of drunk humans though, I want to talk for a second. This is just totally weird and random. And it came up in my, in one of my dev chats today. Um, yeah. this Instagram post is going around and I don't know if folks have seen it. And if, if you haven't, I'm going to, I'll have it linked in the show notes on uh, the website. So, um, stop by drunkenux.com and you'll be able to see this. It's a chimp. And so there's, there's this chimp and they gave the chimp a, uh, a cell phone with Instagram on it. Mm-hmm. and the the video is absolutely enthralling because this chimp is sitting there looking at Instagram and using Instagram.
1: Yeah, it's if you wild if you didn't if you didn't see that it was a chimp, like if you just cover the right side of the screen, you would think it was like a kid with a really wrinkly hand.
0: And I thought for a minute, like, oh well, this is just you know somebody has done some good CG because you, you've yeah people do that you know yeah. you've seen this on Instagram, but sure it's it's a verified account. It's not just some random, like, I don't know the real Tarzan. I don't know who that is, uh, but it's probably somebody super famous that I should know. Uh, let me see. It's, it's Mike, uh, Hol Holston, Mike Holston, um, animal education and conservation. Doesn't seem like the type of dude who would fake videos. So uh, yeah. I'm going to take it at its word. Uh, and so th- they've opened up, I don't know if it's his feed or somebody. It's clearly a wildlife animal feed. And it starts with this chimp is watching a little video uh, an Instagram video of another monkey. Well, I don't know if it's a chimp or what it is. I I don't. Mm-hmm. I build websites. I don't <laughs> don't do animals, so it may be a a, a monkey. I don't know. Uh, what are the types? An orangutan. I don't. It's, I don't think it's that's, an orangutan. That's a chimp.
1: That's a chimp. That is it?
0: Yeah, a chimpanzee. Yeah, that's the the scientific right. word. So he's, but he's watching <laughs> it, and yeah, you can tell like he's he's actively. It's not just like staring at the screen, you know how like right. animals will, sound like a dog or a cat will, someone like stare at a TV, but they're not necessarily watching it.
1: But then, but then he clicks out and go and starts swiping upwards yeah. to go through the feed, and then he taps on a photo or an image, and then he is v- viewing that one, and then he goes back and does the same thing again.
0: He, he understood the flow of, yeah. of the app and was making. I think the thing that really makes it like super bizarre is you realize that he is making active choices as to which ones he wanted to look at.
1: There are preferences and desires being expressed through his interactions. Yeah.
0: And to, to make this valuable to the the listeners at home, this, whether you like Instagram or don't like Instagram, I'm not here to judge, but it really says a lot about the usability of the thing you have made. If you can hand Mm -hmm. it to an animal, even if it's a super smart animal and they can use and understand that interface like that says yeah. something you know about about the the barrier to entry so to speak
1: when when my kids were really little uh my son was about 3 i think and we got him this little like digital camera that i mean, it was like 800 by 600 pixels or whatever and um really durable frame but it was fascinating to see the things that he would go around and take pictures of you know it would be like some of his toys, or like a show he was watching, or a lot of pictures of the fish, pictures of me and his mom, and of uh, the cat, and and it would just like it would be things that he wanted to kind of save, or that he felt were important to take pictures of, and I, that I would love to see what a chimp like give the chimp the camera app, yeah, and what does it take pictures of? That's what I want to see.
0: That's it. it also reminds me of things like if you've seen that video of uh, a a chimp at a zoo. And a person mm-hmm. is sitting in the window with them, with a cup, and is doing like a real, yeah. real simple magic trick. Just a very simple, like, put something under the cup, make it vanish, and show that there's nothing in the cup. Yeah. And the the chimp, you know, they their ability to establish object permanence is such that mm-hmm. when he showed, "Hey, there's nothing in the cup," the chimp was like, "Ah, that's hilarious!" <laughs> um, like they understood a thing happened. Um, yeah, there's there's so much to that i don't know it's it's just very yeah. it's very neat go go look at the video if you haven't seen it yet uh because i do think that it's an interesting thing and i guess and you say like kids um don't they say yeah chimps are basically like a three-year-old child or something like that like on a intelligence I, level yeah I, I could see that so yeah there's there's definitely something to be said there especially when you think about user interfaces and usability so uh the other thing though that we wanted to just kind of start off and and seed in here um being that it's the end of April, uh, this is mm-hmm. this will be the last episode for the month, um, all of you by this point, and many of you who are you know freelance web developers or anything like that, or have done moonlighting or all this stuff, are probably painfully aware of the process of getting your 1099s together, getting, <laughs> you know, if you've got a Schedule C or something like this, and trying Ugh. to file your taxes online. Mm-hmm. Um, ProPublica had an article they put out uh, about TurboTax and their use of dark patterns to basically trick you into paying For software that you don't need uh, Yeah This was something I complained about on Twitter Actually very recently as well So the, the timing on this is all very uh, Auspicious from a subject standpoint I'll throw some of that in the show notes too But uh, the, the way in which Tax software Now Approaches its users Is bordering on In my opinion Unethical yeah. Um and it, it makes me sad as a web developer to know that there are web developers not pushing back against
1: the things they are doing in those platforms. Well, so I I filed my taxes by hand from age 14 until man, probably like 27 or 28 maybe was the first time I e-filed. Um and knowing how to make those decisions and everything it's really complicated it's not it's not easy i mean it's definitely doable you don't need to go to a professional if your tax situation isn't too complicated but it's not easy by any means and so there's a lot of opportunities for a company to bamboozle a customer into thinking they need something that they don't
0: it, and so for like our our web developer friends out there that do a lot of freelancing of any kind or if you're self-employed in general um, and this, this goes back to like our episode with, uh, Joel Goodman talking about starting your own web business. You know, if mm-hmm. you're, if you are your own entity, so to speak, and you are filing, if you've got even a, a very small, like sole proprietor LLC, you're probably, uh, filing all your income under your 1040, which is perfectly legitimate mm-hmm. and appropriate. Um, the, one of the things that TurboTax was getting called out on is you get to the end of their funnel. And they mm. would say, Oh, you are doing all this stuff about being self employed. You need to pay for our $120 mm. you know, advanced self employment platform instead. And they would, yeah. you know, they get you through the whole process before they tell you any of that. And the reality is that from a legal standpoint, the IRS has an agreement with many of these companies that if you make under $66,000 a year, yeah, you do not have to pay to file your taxes, period.
1: Right. Like no, like that's not. There's no complicated thing about it. That's just the rule. So just to establish, uh, in this case, I can actually – I do actually have an agree, degree in accounting, so I can actually say this with some authority that um, you don't have to pay to file your taxes if you do them yourself, like by hand with paper, submitted sure. by mail. It's free, totally free. To file like, state and federal. You have to pay for a stamp. Okay yeah you have, to, you have to pay for a stamp but otherwise it's totally free. So there's no like they're not covering some cost that you would have had to pay otherwise. Second thing is that TurboTax is not the only game in town. There's a whole bunch of them. Um I think we'll have a link. Yeah, we do. We have a link in the show notes for um a site where you can go to find all the other tax filing options for who else can file your things online. I don't use TurboTax. I used uh 1040.com this year which seems like it would be official because it has 1040 in the url but they're i mean it's another private company it was a good ui though like i i had a good experience um i've used other services before i haven't used 1040.com yeah.
0: before i'll have to check that out I, somebody recommended i think it's TaxHawk to me uh hmm. was one i i've, I've used TaxAct act since the early 2000s um, mm-hmm. but even they have fallen prey to this use of dark patterns and, and like, it, it cost me over $70 to file all my taxes this year after paying the federal yep. filing fee, the state filing fee. Now I don't fall under that, that, uh, free filing limit, but, um, they, mm-hmm. so yeah, there is a, a link that'll be in the show notes to the free file listing from the IRS that gives you a list of all the services that will let you file for free and the deal. It's weird though, because that list also includes a lot of very strange exceptions some of them mm-hmm. are just like, yeah, if you make under $66,000, you file for free, here's how. But then others have different limits and different conditions, and I don't know yeah. legally why that is the case because it was part of a settlement kind of thing that they put together with the, with the
1: tax prep people. The link has a, a form that with some pretty basic questions that you probably will know the answer to if you've ever filed your taxes before. Sure. Um, and the, those questions will tell you, which of the forms will apply to you um for free filing um gener- generally if you make under 66000 and you do like a 9 to 5 job and you get a w2 at the end of the year and you don't have anything weird like you know buying and selling property or doing a whole lot of stuff with stocks or whatever um you will probably be able to qualify for the free file
0: yeah anyway uh, uh let's go though cuz here's the thing with the with the dark patterns some of the stuff that, not just Tax Act, but all, you know, all these folks, H&R Block, uh, TurboTax, all these folks were doing. One is the way they were doing their SEO and keyword bidding. So if you tried to do a search for something like IRS file-free um, or mm-hmm. file-free taxes or something like that, you would get results, of course. But, like, the top four or five results would be one of those uh, uh, Google Ad panels. Yeah. And they would all link you into their funnel. That would not give you free taxes, uh, or free filing, rather.
1: Right. That's well, because they're trying to make money off
0: of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there, there's in the ProPublica article, there's this comment that it turns out if you start the process from TurboTax.com, it's impossible to find the truly free version, and the company itself admits this. <laughs> and what they did was they went in and looked, and they, they were actually looking at, like, the cookies and the local storage stuff that was getting set, and they found a value yeah. that uh, was getting set that literally defined you regardless of how you started your taxes. If you started on TurboTax.com, it flagged you as a non-free filer. Huh. Huh. And so even if you click the button that says I'm going to file my taxes for free, you are – it's it's a carnival game. That's what it is, right? It's a total carnival game that – they are dangling a prize
1: in front of you that you can never really win. So there's there's another ProPublica article, and I thought this was the one we were linking to, but it's not, so I just added it to the show notes. But um, uh, Intuit, the company that makes TurboTax, has been lobbying the government to stop you from being able to do free e-filing. You would still be able to file by manually by hand, um, but e-filing, like, like electronic filing, they're trying to make it where you have to go through a third party. Yeah, and Which... and
0: try to go through their checkout process as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they've done stuff like the the naming, the nomenclature of this. Um, I mean, on one hand, it's like it's brilliant, but it's also insidious uh, because oh yeah, the, the naming. If you go to TurboTax, they have a product called Free Edition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Aaron, what would you expect the free edition to be? <laughs> Let me just <laughs> just throw it out there. I mean, what do you think the free edition implies?
1: I think that if it's says free edition, it should probably be no money. It should probably not have a cost associated and with it. And, of
0: course, it is. But, again, it's, it's like any weirdly good deal. It's like if you are not absolutely meeting every checkbox on a 12-point list, you don't qualify. And mm-hmm. most people don't uh, because the free edition is not the free edition as defined by the IRS. Huh. Their version of that is called the Freedom Edition. And so they have deliberately misnamed the products in such a way that the way you would search for it, the way you would look for that information and the nomenclature the user uses is being actively used against them in in the platform and on the website. I mean, that's – I I said to start, it's unethical at the very least in my opinion.
1: I – I know that other articles have been much more strongly worded about this, but there are alternatives to TurboTax. TurboTax is doing bad things here, and I I, I can't—I would never recommend them to anyone. There are plenty of good alternatives that do just a fine job. Um, I won't say which one you should use, that's up to you, but maybe don't use TurboTax.
0: It, it all reminds me, and it doesn't—I mean— like I said, I don't use TurboTax. I use TaxAct, but I still see the same mm. stuff. It all comes down to this: yeah. very anybody who's ever used GoDaddy, which yeah. at some point we do. I don't know why that's a weird rite of passage, but at some point we've <laughs> all had to deal with GoDaddy. But the their approach to upselling mm. and trying to trick you into th- paying for things, like you know, uh, if you want a privacy guard on your DNS registration, yeah. You know yep. what does that cost through yeah, GoDaddy? Like ten bucks, twelve bucks a year, something extra. But oh my gosh, really? I don't. I don't know that much. It may not be, and I may be wrong on that, and don't don't take that as okay. word. But they charge. They charge extra for privacy guard. Uh wow. Google doesn't. That's literally yeah. part of what you are paying for. Like it's just free.
1: It never used to cost any money. I I remember I used to register domains through DreamHost, and like you know the privacy, the who is privacy anonymization was always part of it. I, I it was just a recent thing when they made it. Be like a an upcharge,
0: yeah. And I mean, I may have that wrong. It may be much cheaper than that. But the fact of the matter is, they try to upsell you on it, um, yeah, which is not great. What what the tax software does, and like what I saw in in tax act, they're like, hey, let us run these reports for you, uh, and you know, we'll we'll do this planning. We'll we'll offer you these planning services for your next year, and Mm -hmm. that gives that is an extra service they want to charge you for if you have to attach extra forms that's where they start funneling you into all of these other versions of their product adding on states or anything is always extra um the my favorite one is the audit protection and they're like here yeah pay us extra and we'll give you audit protection and i just want to look at them and be like what are you the fucking mob
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so all right i actually paid for that this year it was the first time i ever did and the only reason was because my uh I, I had some inheritance last year and some other stuff and the tax situation was weird and I wanted to just it was like thirty bucks and I was like, you know what? It's just thirty bucks for peace of mind. Sure. I'll take
0: it. And I think, you know, in certain circumstances I'm sure it's well worth it. And if you if you're paying mm-hmm. for tax preparation, you probably should pay for that or have it, you know, as part of the package. I would argue if you feel like you need that level of protection, you probably should go to an actual. You should do an account. Yeah, you should actually go yeah. to a tax accountant and have them do it for you because most of the time yeah. they do include that protection as part of what you're paying yeah. for.
1: There's there's a there's a line on the 1040 that says if it's if it's a paid preparer, then the paid preparer has to sign yeah. it separately. And
0: the the thing yeah. comes down to like when you get to these pages, it's always in the final steps. It's always in like the I'm ready to e-file. Mm -hmm. and it's always a case of like a big button to continue quote unquote or the little text link that says no thanks i waive protection right and so it's like they're all they're (laughs) doing all of these little things to try and trick you they're they keep stopping you that's the other part is they keep interrupting your experience and trying through fatigue to convince you to click a certain button or take a certain action that will result in you paying them more money
1: I'm surprised they don't word it like uh like yes I want to be protected or no I'll handle my own audit. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just uh, for the for listeners you're probably not ever going to get audited unless your tax situation is really weird. Um it's the IRS is funding for doing audits has gotten reduced a lot in the past few years oh they yeah they um, have
0: almost no capacity to do audits anymore and it means they only go after people who's got like they have income deviations that are
1: like off the charts kind of stuff if if you're if your tax situation like basically like if your tax situation is such that a computer could flag you as like likely needing an audit for example if you have a lot of weird deductions or if you have a business that mysteriously wipes out all of your income because of deductions or something like that, then you're more likely to get an audit. But if you're just if you're making a good faith effort to file your taxes, like chances are if you get any kind of audit at all, it'll just be a form letter that says like, Oh, hey, you owe us an extra a hundred or two dollars or whatever. Yep. I had that happen a couple of years ago. Yeah. I forgot. Missed the 1099. <laughs> I mean, it
0: all comes down. I know this This is kind of a ranty way to start the show, and I apologize to the listeners for that. But it is something that I think reflects an ethical obligation as web developers. And it's. I've talked about this before, and I think it really shows up in cases like this when dark patterns come into play, especially mm-hmm. in a service that everybody has to use. And even though, yes, you can absolutely yeah. file by paper – most people don't want to do that because it is a lot of ex- it's a, pain it's in the a lot of extra work.
1: It, um just a PSA on that note though, if you have a simple tax situation like I mentioned earlier if you do a 9 to 5 job, you just collect the W2 and that's it. Go to your post office for tax season uh and look for a 1040 easy. Yeah, 1040 easy. Um if your situation is just a little bit weirder like maybe you have student loan interest or something you're deducting, 1040A. Those are both very simple you don't have to re- save your receipts or anything like that you just put you cro- find the numbers in the boxes and you fill them out on the form you do some very simple math you can do on a calculator or on a piece of paper um and then you sign it and mail it in it's it's really it should take you 30 minutes to an hour at and most. here's the real
0: crux of this situation is that all of these companies H&R Block TurboTax TaxAct into mm-hmm. it take your pick All of them have a vested interest in ensuring that you think it is too complicated to do your taxes yourself and that you can't trust yourself to accomplish that math. They they have a vested financial monetary interest in making you feel that, and Mm -hmm. you have to resist that, whether it's in their commercials, in the calls to action on their website, whatever that case may
1: be trust yourself more than them in those situations well their revenue models are based on selling these services and upcharging and they make more profit if they get more upsold services or premium services so
0: i promised i wasn't going to go like political on this point but it is uh, Eh, it's not political political, but it it, it, it (laughs) comes back to this idea that these companies the reason they're part of the reason our tax code is so complicated because again yeah. they have a vested interest in that they can afford to make sure that they have ways to work out that math and the more complicated it is and the more systems it takes to figure it all out the better off they are because they know that they convince people that they can't handle it on their own and they they yeah. they have to create that dependency otherwise the model doesn't work
1: oh uh one last psa if you do do freelancing or you collect 1099 income um File your quarter lease. Mm. Don't don't pay the penalty. Yeah. Um and if you do end up owing money to the IRS, uh, you can set up a payment plan. They will give you, I believe, four months, like until August, um, with no interest at all. And then if you need to go beyond that, um the interest rate is very manageable. So don't don't feel like you have to put yourself out and certainly don't put it on a credit card because they're gonna be pay more in yeah, interest.
0: That's and that's really important so, for folks who do any kind of freelancing. And while this may yeah, you know the the idea of dark patterns is one thing, but the idea of just tax issues in general is another. Yeah, um, I do think that's really important for people who do a lot of freelance web development to think about because that I've had years where uh, I've done like uh, consulting contracts on the side, mm-hmm. and I mean it's we're talking like five figures worth of of consulting work that that yeah. adds up, and if you don't pay those yeah. court and the quarterly tax thing like they you can complain about like education and all that all you want to about well they don't teach mm-hmm. you how to do taxes and yeah yeah, yeah yeah uh one of the things that you really don't learn about until you've sat down and talked to other people is that i do <laughs> quarterly taxes uh that's something that yeah. until you realize it's a thing it's not something that just comes up you know so the yeah. the end point of this before and we're gonna i swear we're getting into our real topic <laughs> <laughs> this idea of ethics in web development and i the thing i said on twitter the other day was this idea of i feel like as an industry we we almost need a hippocratic oath as web developers because we mm-hmm. have nothing else that keeps us in check when it comes to marketing and business uh decisions affecting the things that we build and this idea that i'm going to build the thing that i'm being paid to build because i'm or that i'm being paid to build is a very damaging mentality to take on because it's very turnkey Mm -hmm. and it makes you not think about the consequences. And at the end of the day, web developers are literally the last line of defense between the thing Mm -hmm. people, you know, the business thing people want to build and the thing that is right for users.
1: I, I know you're a fan of uh, Larry Lessig, the guy behind the um, creative commons and also ran for president at least once um he had a thing for the uh, root strikers nonprofit right. that he yeah. ran which was uh it was i forget the name of the pledge but what it, it was like a few bullet point items and um congress people and another represent- representative government people could could aff- like assert i like i pledge or i will not do this like i will not take money from these people or i will not do these things it would be cool to have something like that for web developers yeah. you know just with with a a very short like half dozen items of kind of some ethical things that we will abide by as web developers um and kind of just you know asserting these things and
0: because i don't I, you know i i don't want to call out developers and the folks who have built these systems and things like that but at the end of the day you did build it uh and yeah. you know it's it's the oppenheimer Uh, quote right (laughs) and now i am become death the destroyer of worlds like he understood the consequence of building the bomb so to speak like that was a that was a big deal and it it, the uh, impact of that was not lost on him and i think as web developers Mm. while yeah we're not building nuclear weapons to you know wipe out cities and that's (laughs) boy this this Metaphor is going weird, (laughs) but we we do. I think we do have that ethical obligation to consider the things we are building, how it impacts people, and how it impacts business. That's all. Yeah. Uh, man, dude, can we change this subject? Uh, yes.
1: I'm really excited to talk about our next topic. It's gonna
0: yeah, because it's all about government.
1: (laughs) Well, no, because because it's gonna extend expand. So, like the last episode, we expanded on. Um, web components. And we talked also about... Which extended um, on
0: the previous talk on uh, the Hacks Editor and what they were doing. We're we're like chaining. We're we're false multiplying.
1: So we also, last episode, we also talked about um, accessibility with design systems. And this time we're going to talk about the design system that the US government built called the uh, USWDS 2.0. So this... uh, Say, say what say what you will about the U.S. government, but, like, this is cool. The,
0: the stuff I have so far, uh, and with the folks I've talked to there and all this, like, I have nothing but good things to say about the folks who have done mm-hmm. work at the USDS. Um, that's the United yeah. States Digital Services. It's a department yeah. of the federal government now. They work kind of like – it's kind of like the Peace Corps, sort of. Like, people go yeah. there and, like, work – stints basically like a year they'll they'll work a year on contract or something like that Mm -hmm. and they'll go and they put teams together and they send these teams out to places like the va or something like that and they say hey we're gonna help you with your website we're gonna fix it and these are folks that are genuinely good at what they do these aren't like you Mm -hmm. know the way we have a thought about web development uh from a government standpoint like it's frequently not good <laughs> <laughs> i hate to say that but i mean there is this idea that right the people who it's it's kind of like that the people who can't uh do teach mentality you know the people who can't really we... do web development end up in government <laughs> web development jobs uh which is not fair but it was for a while um
1: I mean, we talked about healthcare.gov uh, although in i would say in the defense there healthcare.gov was done by a third yeah. party contractor the, the, so, and the
0: front end versus the back end there is i think an important distinction.
1: Yeah. Having as someone who worked in web development in the government, I can say that there there are smart people, many smart people that work in there and um I I really like I'm excited to see this product because it's really neat. It's and it's the design system like we talked about last episode. Yeah,
0: so last episode we were talking about this idea of how web components can help you build a design system and the value that they add mm-hmm. there. In in 2015, USDS stepped up and said, "Hey, government websites are bad. They mm-hmm. aren't working well, they aren't fulfilling the contracts with the users from a usability standpoint. Let us help." And so they yeah. came out with the first version of their design system. And at that point in time, it was very much like a foundation or bootstrap kind of system. They they yes. had a pattern library. They had a few different philosophical points mixed in and things like that. They brought in some ideas like yeah. accessibility and how that works in and how to you know make that part of your process. And they tried to put together this package. And mm-hmm. at, at that point, even it was good. Like it was yeah. a, it, for for its time. It was very. It was...
1: Oh, yeah. It was it was yeah.
0: entirely usable. Yeah. It was open source on GitHub. So if anybody wanted to go and play mm-hmm. with it or adjust it or help with it, um, they could certainly do that. That's actually something that I've kind of been interested in, but I need more hours in my day. Like, I think it'd be very <laughs> cool to go in and sit down with, with that repo and look at it. And they do public calls mm-hmm. uh, where you can sit in and listen uh, to what they're working on. So. Yeah. This last uh in the last couple of weeks they announced that uh the 2.0 has finally gone gold for them. Yeah. It has included, I'm just going to read the list here. It has incremental uh adoption, so you can basically bring it into a project and use the pieces you need. Very again, very much like a foundation if you use npm or something to build a foundation mm-hmm. project, you can import it and then turn on just the parts that you want. Uh They've introduced it, uh, practical design tokens, func- functions, and mix-ins, again, trying to mm-hmm. focus on the, s- the small bits and just what you need, um, accessible color system. Where have we yep. heard that before? <laughs> <laughs> uh, expressive theming, which is, uh, uh, an attachment to this idea of they don't want to break up or disrupt the existing, uh, layouts and templates of sites that uh, exist currently and so they have built in these uh these catches and hooks so that you can bring in existing stuff very easily
1: right because it doesn't need to be grayscale or olive drab or boring colors right. like it's colors free like we can use whatever color we want <laughs> um,
0: utility classes that's something we've seen many places they've gone to a 12 the column simplified layout grid uh I have feelings about grids, but that's a topic for another time.
1: Wait, before you get to the next Uh-oh. point, because it, it's a really big one, and I don't want to interrupt it. But on the WDS, uh, on the uh, design system site, they have a page called Design Principles. Right. It's got a lot of content on here. I just want to read the headings. Uh, if you listeners, if you recall our our guest episode with Greg Pedenovich, which I know we go back to all the time. It's a good episode. But, it was a good episode. That was one of the ones where I spaced out. <laughs> Greg, Greg was talking for like a couple minutes. We, we had that... a
0: lot of martinis that night. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, anyways, so we were talking about design philosophies, and it was just sort of like the the overarching like principles or like almost ethos that you have regarding your like direction with design. So this is the design principles for this design system: put user needs first, make it easy to do the right thing accessibility is fundamental start from existing solutions be consistent not static and share what we do and like and that's it those six things
0: you know what i think one of the big ones there that be consistent not static
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: that's it doesn't feel like much when you say it but when you think about it from a how you do work standpoint Mm -hmm. it really starts to mean a lot i think Um, yeah And this idea of consistency doesn't mean not changing.
1: Right. Right. Uh,
0: You know, as you become more fluent in a language, a foreign language or something like you're still you, you're still using your own vernacular and your own inflection and technique, but you get better. You get, Mm -hmm. you get smarter about how you do things and that growth is necessary. You are still consistently you, but you haven't stayed static you haven't stayed in that sort of very base level of thinking about the language yeah i think that's how that
1: translates into a design system right so i interrupted you're about to talk about this last item that i think is super cool you're fine uh wait i'm gonna
0: i'm gonna skip because there actually is one after that but i don't (laughs) have any i have no bullet points after that one that's the it's a stable foundation that is built to help grow which, yeah, yeah, sure it is. Of course, everything is. So the one, though, and this is silly, but it's it's also fun. They have introduced the Public Sans typeface. Pub-
1: public Sans.
0: I, public Sans. So, you know, yeah. we've got Open Sans. We've got uh, all of these different open license uh, uh, Sans Serif fonts. And they came out and said, you know what? We're going to do our own, too. Uh, mm. I'm gonna link it. There's an article in the show notes uh, from Vice of all places, but they they wrote up uh, some details on uh, this font, and it's it's a very it's an interesting idea. Um, it does make sense from the standpoint of them trying to express their own uh, mm. sort of standard, and they wanted a typeface that would reflect the scalability that they wanted across all of their governmental properties, which is vast. Right, I'll,
1: we'll talk about that in a minute. So hey, the well, it's it's public, like like Open Sans is is one thing, but like Public Sans, like I just like how that sounds, yeah. Like it's like the Sans Serif font that belongs to all of us. But they they released it. They could have done it as like public domain, right? They could have just said this is public domain, anyone can use it. But they didn't. They used the OSI, they used the Open Source Initiative license, so it's under the Open Font License. So it is like using an like an official you know, tech community flagship standard that's sort of like not owned by any governmental body. Like the open yeah. source initiative is just like collectively owned by all all of us. And and they released it under that license. And I think that's really neat.
0: It it goes back to that idea, right, of the folks who are working at USDS they're on their game. Like these aren't yeah. just random guys that got hired and decided to do yeah. development. Like these are folks who are looking towards they still have 30 years of career ahead of them in many cases like oh yeah they're yeah. young they're they're engaged they're enthusiastic and they care about the way work is done mm-hmm. There, the, the one thing i don't get i'm gonna read this quote because <laughs> yeah, i don't know i don't know about this i because I, I, my response to this typeface was probably what a lot of folks will look at and it's like just why what's yeah. the point in having your own typeface when there are so many out there There is a quote from them, and this is quoted in this Vice article. It says, "'During the U.S. Web Design System 2.0 development process, it became clear that this typeface could be a useful target for our font normalization feature,' the GSA spokesperson explained. "'Since other faces are normalized to the optical size of public sans and common system fonts of USWDS 2.0, using public sans in our design file ensures that when designs go into production, The balance of the type hierarchy remains similar, even if the chosen font eventually changes. In other words, public sans is somewhat of an internal test case for USWDS 2.0's ability to adapt whatever typeface a designer may wish to use into the visual language of the rest of the USWDS framework. What the fuck does that mean?
1: I I don't, I don't get that either.
0: Like I get that, you know, fonts scale differently and and things like that. And I I think that's kind of what it's dealing with. Um, But at the same time, I really don't understand when you start talking about using whatever font the designer wants to use. Well, if other fonts scale differently because, you know, where their baseline is, because I've, let me tell you, I've got some fonts that I have a real, it's (laughs) not a love-hate relationship. It's just a hate-hate relationship with (laughs) and how they play in practice. I don't, I, I don't fully understand that as the explanation for why they did their own typeface.
1: I like the quote that's further on in that paragraph, and that describes the, uh, the public sands as simple, neutral, and isn't Helvetica. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nothing wrong with Helvetica.
1: Nothing wrong at, at all. At least but it's not like, Verdana. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, there's a couple other things of dealing with font that was very interesting to me as uh, part of this. Mm. One was their introduction of type scale so with type scale uh, and if you've used other uh, other css frameworks and we like mm-hmm. we've got this baked into ours as kind of a convention that we did ourselves but you know it's basically this idea of having like size small size medium size large mm-hmm. size extra large and you set like br- not breakpoints but like s- uh stopping points for each of those right they've introduced a a scale system that has 20 steps in it so you really? can dynamically, if you use their design system, you can go in and and say at each stop, you know, at large, I want my scale to be eight. At, you know, mm. double X large, I want it to be 16. um At mm. small, I want it to be four. And so you can yeah. use that scale as a means of controlling the way it sizes abstractly. Mm-hmm. The other part of that that I found at f- my initial reaction and i really hope
1: and, and wait before before you say what it is let's let's call back to our episode with tatiana mac where <laughs> she said that your site should have a font size of 16 right. pixels that's that's the readable font size 16 pixels right michael
0: i i get it i am getting <laughs> old i understand <laughs> when i said this and to his credit Aaron had the same reaction I did, and I hope some of our <laughs> listeners do. The root font size in USWDS is 10 pixels. <laughs> yeah.
1: but, Ten, which is not which is not 16. It's, it's not smaller 16. than 16.
0: But after I I at my initial reaction was what? <laughs> and then it almost instantly made sense. Right. Because now every REM calculation you do in your CSS is based on a 10 X multiplier. So if you need 16 point font, your REM calculation is 1.6. If you need a 53 uh, pixel font, your REM is 5.3. It's actually kind of brilliant. And I'm really disappointed that it has never occurred to me to do that because (laughs) right, so many of us, we always, and, uh, like, take Foundation. If you use Foundation, I believe its mm-hmm. base font is 14 pixels. Um, right. It may be 16 now, but I, I think it's still 14. Um, so, sorry if I'm wrong on that. Point is the same. If you right. then need a 27-pixel font, what's the REM calculation on that off the top of your head from 14? 14, what was... if, 14 if, to what? If your base is 14 and you need 27, what's the REM calculation off the
1: top uh, of your head? One, come one, on. One 1. 1.5. Or no. Nope. That would be twenty one. Uh, God, fourteen to twenty seven. <laughs> yeah, see, because that's what we
0: get. That's the kind of things we get handed by designers. Sometimes you open up your Envision sketch or your Envision deal, your sketch or uh, XD or whatever the case may be, and you get these specs that are like, "Wait, what font did you use?"
1: Just under one point eight, I think.
0: Yeah, it, it's a weird number, and it's not something you can just rattle off. Right, right. But if your base is ten and you need twenty-seven, the calculation is two point seven. It's yeah, kind of brilliant. I <laughs> I sort of love it. This is
1: this is like the difference between using. Um... Imperial standard measurement versus metric. Oh, mentally. yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is the, the two Americans in the room here realizing the right. importance of the
0: metric system, right? <laughs> um, so to everybody who listens to us overseas, we get it. We understand. Uh, yeah. But really, it is. It's, it's a very uh, intuitive thing. And I'm, honestly, the next time it comes up, I'm going to advocate for a 10-pixel base font and, yeah. and then use that as the REM calculation on everything because, man talk about making it easy like and i don't know if you do this yeah. uh aaron but when i like look uh when i'm working on a sas file and i'm trying to calculate mm-hmm. a particular font size i always do the comment out to the side that is like you know this right. is this is 1.125 ram and it's meant to be 18 pixels
1: right uh, and because i do something something like that yeah, yeah
0: because you need that reference for other people and everything but right yeah i mean this, this eliminates that need. it's it's silly it's such a weird, like small mm-hmm. thing, but man, that attention to detail yeah, absolutely speaks volumes to the folks who have built this and and my hat's off to them because yeah I don't think I've ever read an article from Chris Coyer or or Ethan marcotte or any of these folks that have advocated for a ten pixel base font <laughs> and and uh, just that way, and if they've written that and I missed it, I apologize uh don't scream at me, but.
1: Uh, well, yeah, it's do you should check check it out the the link's in the show notes uh actually, it, it it's a yet.
0: good font too. Let's just say that cuz we didn't mention that. The, the font here. is a perfectly good font.
1: It's super here I can actually just read the URL cuz it's that easy. It's v2.designsystem.digital.gov. That's it. v2.designsystem.digital.gov. Yeah. It's it's cool. Check it out.
0: So, okay, let's see here. Uh it's worth noting that This isn't like a little niche product that isn't being used anywhere. Um, The digital services have worked hard to roll this out within the federal government of the United States. They've now got it on like 200 websites, Mm -hmm. which I mean, the the federal government has, I think, a lot more websites than people realize.
1: Oh, my Um, gosh. Yes. But yeah.
0: And and we'll have a link in the show notes. They have a list actually on their uh, documentation of every place they have rolled it out. And it's everything from the White House uses it, the VA uses it, it's deployed on parts of health.gov, mm-hmm. all of these different uh, departments of agriculture and folks like that have it, as well as lots of like fringe sites and, and small services and things, and one-offs um, that get produced now all start with that as the base layer. And I even remember, Aaron, talking to you uh, a, a few months back about this, and and you were real excited about the idea of like, Trying to introduce this because you worked yeah. and you were a government contractor. And so it was like this idea of, hey, let's look at bringing this into our work since it's already kind of a government standard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was, uh, the people that I talked with on my team at the time, um, they were aware of it and they were working on changing out some of our templates for it too. And so, based on the 2.0 rollout, part of what they're
0: emphasizing is it's easy to, adapt to so it's not a matter of bringing it in and changing your whole website it's a matter of bringing it in and accommodating the website and adapting it over time to the new features Mm -hmm. which makes it a good starting point and a good a good starting point for anybody trying to build a website at that point or update a website you know if you go from using you know your own code to something like bootstrap or foundation you frequently Mm -hmm. find yourself having to rewrite your entire website and they have tried uh there's there's gonna be a video actually in the show notes of this where they and it's a video from a couple months ago when they were still beta testing this but they talk a lot about uh you know this ability to scope the css and do things that limit its ability to leak into your existing design so that you only use the parts of it you want Um, yeah and they were they were very cognizant of that and again back to this credit like this was built by people who get it. They understand these challenges that we have as boots on the ground. It's awesome. So this idea of design systems certainly isn't new and not new in government even. Uh, mm-hmm. You had mentioned to me a uh, presidential candidate for this year. And he has a funny yeah. name. That's all I remember. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's um, oh, the way that... I do remember. Yeah.
0: I do remember. It's the marketing yeah. campaign. Butt edge edge.
1: (laughs) It's um, uh, boot edge edge. Is it is it boot
0: edge edge or is it butt edge edge? Because boot, I'll tell you, the the marketing thing literally says butt edge edge.
1: (laughs) I just, I mean, I think the t shirts say boot edge edge, don't they? I
0: I don't. I buy me a t shirt and I'll wear it. That's all I'm gonna say.
1: I this isn't to say I advocate for him or anything. I uh, this isn't an endorsement at all. I, uh, I'm just I literally aware of, of him. Of the guy. Yeah. Um. He uh. He's got a he, he made some press recently where there was uh, uh kind of a media like ooh about the design system that his campaign rolled out. Yeah. Like and
0: to be clear, like this is in fast company. It's not just, yeah. like, some random slash dot article or something like that. Like, they're, what they did made Fast Company, and so we'll have a link to that as well in the show notes, so check that out. Because, yeah, it's, it's neat, to say the least.
1: Yeah. Uh, the design system, it, it's basically just a um, color palette set and maybe, like, some graphics and uh, just some, like, pre-made marketing collateral that can be used by, like you and I or, or anyone who wants to endorse or campaign this particular candidate. Um, I'm only briefly going to mention this, but there was also a Twitter clapback um, because Mina Markham, I hope I'm saying her name right, she had done a design system called Pantsuit for uh, the Clinton campaign. Uh, and there was a bunch of um, people who were like, you know, you know, Pete's not the first person to do a design system and rightfully so like she legitimately did one for that campaign um and i guess uh you found a book designing obama by scott thomas
0: yeah yeah so uh
1: i don't know if this is a design system but it's similar
0: it's well yeah it it, i think it definitely qualifies this goes back a a fairly long way in terms of you know web technology certainly um this goes back to the original obama campaign in 2008 scott thomas uh put out his book designing obama where they went into, like, everybody remembers that O logo, but mm-hmm. the design concept that they had for the campaign overall was certainly much bigger than that. The book's, like, 338 pages. It is it is a yeah. comprehensive uh, look at the way they approached design and branding for that campaign, not just online, of course, you know, it covered the spectrum, um, but that was maybe one of the first really big political sort of, like, Hey, we're actually putting thought into this marketing camp. Like, let me ask you: name, name one thing associated with George W. Bush from a marketing standpoint. Logo, w. logo design, colors. Aside from red, red, white, and blue. W W W. Yeah, yeah. Like, what? What was the? What was the Georgie marketing Dubs. anchor of his campaign? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I I challenge anybody to tell me because I honestly I don't remember anything about his campaign, and I'm old enough to remember. So, but Obama came out with this idea of hope, right? Yeah, the the hope branding and the O and the the way not just the colors that were used, but the specific color blue that that sort of uh mix between a a powder and a royal blue that he used, right. Uh, Right. the uh there was a specific texture that they used in some of the backgrounds um mm-hmm. and things like that, and so this this book goes into that, but it was this first real dive into this idea of using a design system what what edge edge is doing um edge I'm going to say it both ways now because I don't know <laughs> you know they have released their design system as a utility effectively and said yeah. here is here are the colors that define us. You know, here are the ways we present our brand, and here's a tool set you can use to show your support for us so that anybody yeah. can create a a logo for his
1: campaign in, to an extent. And see, I think that is really cool. And, and I think that this is something that we can perhaps extend beyond just uh, Pete's campaign and beyond just politics in general. You know, like you and I used to work in higher ed, and I don't know what your campus was like but on our campus we had a style guide with branding guidelines and they were really strict about it you know central communications was like you will only use the I and the U in this image literally this ping file that we're giving you you only use these Pantone colors for print and like you'll use these fonts etc you have to pay us for them etc but it was a lot of like really technical marketing stuff that uh, if you're not a trained designer, like, you know, are you, do you know, does that, do you know what a Pantone color right. is? Like, um. It was a strict this,
0: style guide.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it but it used a lot of, like, lingo and a lot of uh industry jargon. This doesn't. This says, like, these are the colors we like. These, these are the, like, here's the names for them that we're calling them, and here's the hex colors, because you'll need those. But this is the colors. And, you know, if you want to do stuff that's on brand for us, these are the colors you'll use. This is some images you can use. We've made this vector art for you already. It, it's like, um like we're kind of like in the, the age of memes right now, right? Like <laughs> everyone's creating stuff. We're we're all creating images and content and whatever else. Whether you're doing an image macro or a weird YouTube video or whatever, like people create stuff now, and so this is giving people the correct configuration and settings. Because if they want to do it, they, they want to support your campaign. They want to use the correct colors. And if you just give them that correct colors and that information, they'll use it.
0: Yeah, This kind of overlaps with the broader scheme of what a design system is. And, and what mm-hmm. Pete has done is a very good interpretation of a design system, which is producing a means of not just enforcing your branding, but producing things based on it that are inherently in uh, compliance with that branding. Right? So it gets into what we talk about for what a design system is. Design systems are a confluence of the philosophy and values that drive you as an organization, which like Mm -hmm. you you quoted from the, the WDS, they've got six design philosophies that anchor what they built. The styles... That go along with that styles are an abstract expression of the the colors you know the branding the voice the things that define you culturally and then the yeah. patterns the patterns are the implementation of those things you know they are the strict well and and so the the one thing that us uh, WDS two point said we're releasing practical design tokens um, they use the right. phrase tokens tokens are that sort of abstraction and application of patterns Mm -hmm. and so we'll i'll throw a link in the show notes to the design principles as well because i think those translate all that really well but that's really what we get to because at the end of the day design systems help developers they help designers Mm -hmm. absolutely but what they really help are the people who bring you the things to design and to develop
1: yeah the things
0: you are going to have to build,
1: and and for for a campaign, especially especially one that's positioning itself as kind of grassroots, ostensibly, um, this one the their design toolkit offers uh let's see logos, the colors like I mentioned before, type so like which fonts to use, and then um there's a thing called Team Pete, and that has a designed state named like your state so New York for Pete or whatever right has like a logo for your state. Um, But if you were, if your organization, and so if your university campus or your, I don't know, local sports team or whatever, if you want to allow your fans or your supporters to show their support, this is a really cool way to do that. You, you just tell them this information and you make it publicly available and say like, Hey, show up like wearing your best design or your best t-shirt or sign or whatever. Um, here's, here's the stuff you need to know about us.
0: Yeah. So what this is all designed to do is, uh, get you to the point as a developer or designer that you can deal with the ad hoc work that comes your way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, um, you know, I've had a problem with for the last God, 15 years is stuff coming to me that styles are easy. A style guide is actually very simple in a lot of cases. Let's take say Mm -hmm. Pepsi, Mm -hmm. the Pepsi style guide is very simple. The Pepsi font is extremely distinctive. You know that that's a thing that Pepsi uses. The color Mm -hmm. blue and the color red they use in their Mm -hmm. logo is very distinctive. It's very specific. It's something that's going to be expressed through the work. And so if somebody is contracted outside of Pepsi to help build a landing page, let's say, Mm
1: -hmm. it's
0: very easy to tell them, use this font, use these colors, you know, here's our voice, whatever where it gets harder is then when that gets handed off to a developer or some a designer to refine it or whatever the case may be because it starts to impact and you'll see this much much more in larger organizations in all fairness folks who work freelance you know i don't know what to tell you you can certainly have an internal design system that you use um you can develop design systems for the folks you contract with Mm -hmm. small organizations don't care (laughs) you know i mean for yeah i mean for better or worse they don't because they're small and it's that's not the value that they bring but at any kind of larger organization if you can hand off a design system to that third party Mm -hmm. it is kind of a contract into the reliability and confidence of your workflow because yeah one of the things and this is where things get gnarly is um I've worked with my company for seven years. It's a large organization. We have many brands, not just one brand, um, but the brands are related. And so we run into problems because each brand is, of course, distinct but connected. And so what we've been after is this very nice balance of each brand needs a style guide, certainly, but our design principles, our design philosophy – are at an organizational level, not at a brand level. Right. And our pattern library needs to be at an organizational level because what we get is, you know, if, if one part of our company goes out and contracts with a third party to bring in a design for a landing page or something and they come in with, let's say, a 50-50 panel that has yeah. an image on one side and content on the right side or something like that, I mean, we internally have already developed some solutions to that. But if that other group doesn't know that and we don't have any, like, defined value, organizational value attached to that layout, they mm-hmm. give us something else. Now we're stuck maintaining two different 50-50 panels that are maybe close, yeah. but not quite. The padding's a little different. The treatment of the image is a little different. And it results in a uh, an enormous amount of overhead to then maintain right. things that are effectively the same. That's one thing that when you bring in a design system, you can start to eliminate because when you contract with somebody, the first thing you do is you say, here is our system. It's like walking yeah. up to a kid and pouring a bucket of Lego blocks in their lap.
1: <laughs> there may be a thousand
0: Lego blocks in that, uh, in that bucket, <laughs> but you know that the thing they build out of it is something that you can reproduce every time without going out to, this, to Walmart and buying more Legos.
1: Right. Right. Right,
0: that's the value of the design, at least to me. That's the value that I see in it.
1: It, it reminds me a little of uh, we had a, a, a social media consultant when I was at IU. Um, Brad Ward, his name was, yeah. uh, and he and he said um, that he was he was telling our some of our leadership, you know, like regarding social media and why we needed to be on that was because people are going to be talking about you on various platforms, like Twitter, Facebook, et cetera and so like that's going to happen whether or not you like it and so your participation in that online discussion is something you can opt into and so you're like you're affirmatively choosing to be part of that and to potentially steer it and i and i think that that's sort of one of the advantages of creating a design system like this is that you know if other people are going to create content or whatever for you regardless because they love your brand or whatever you can at least make sure that they're getting your colors right. Yeah. Or getting your farm right. Yeah.
0: Because you, you want to reduce work at the tail end. And this is yeah. always that risk. And I'm I'm going through that right now. I'm I'm working on a project where what was designed was designed entirely in a vacuum. It didn't mm-hmm. take into consideration the technology being used, the CMS being <laughs> used. It had it didn't take <laughs> any of that into account. And Yes, I can solve every problem that is presented mm-hmm. in that design, but the difficulty associated with something like how the menu is presented, and this is one that yeah. actually comes up a lot, how a, a responsive menu is based on a, mo- a mobile design versus a desktop design. Right. The mobile design was such that, I couldn't use the markup that was generated because the system, it's WordPress. I don't know why I'm being cagey about it. (laughs) WordPress's menu output has a very specific structure to it. And it's a very flexible and useful structure. But I couldn't produce the mobile navigation without either creating a second totally different menu or by (laughs) adding on an enormous amount of extra JavaScript To completely (laughs) rewrite the DOM to account for it. Um, That's where these things like design systems come in because you can account for all of that well ahead of time. You can adapt, you can know that these problems are there, and it silently kind of enforces a rule set upon the people who will then pick that up and use it. They don't need to care what CMS you're using or what output it has. All they know is this is. You know, when I look at your design system, I can look at the pattern component of that and know this is the way menus are output. Or I can look at your accessibility standards and know that if I give you uh, yellow text on a white background, (laughs) that that is not something that you're going to find acceptable. You know, (laughs) those are the (laughs) things that we strive for when we bring all of this together, because I think that in the end, it makes everybody better. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, even the most developeriest developers amongst us, you may never touch CSS, you may have want to have nothing to do with it. But at least understanding the values that your company has, Mm -hmm. that directs the way that you build the thing that is coming next.
1: Like, I would say the hardest part of creating something is going is having that initial vision of going from nothing at all and then making those decisions to to will something into existence. And so when you have a design system that's given to you, all those decisions are already made. And so now you have kind of a defined universe that you can work in and it just it's really simplifies the process a lot.
0: And there's another big piece to design systems that something that has been argued, my God, I've been going to conferences as long as I've, been a professional in this industry and it's been a topic website redesigns (laughs) i i almost got him (laughs) i almost got him oh Oh. they are a waste of time and money website redesigns are the ultimate admission of failure from a strategy (laughs) standpoint the way you
1: except except when they're necessary
0: but if they become necessary, it is still out of failure. The only time that is not true is if your company has been bought by another company and you are forced to literally change the entire identity of your
1: brand. I'm I'm thinking more of like, and this really isn't doesn't apply that much anymore. But I'm thinking more like you know in the early 2000s, you've got HTML that was written without CSS at all, and you sure. have to implement CSS or it was implemented with CSS, but it wasn't done using modern best practices. It was done using crappy CSS or whatever. But like sometimes technology changes and there are new, there's new hotness out there Fair enough. and it's just time. Sure. But that's not every year though. And I think that some companies or organizations are like every year they feel like they have to do a, like an overhaul. Yeah. It's like, why? Why would you spend that money? And
0: and one thing like we have tried to do uh over the last few years to insulate us from that is we have worked very hard to kind of almost develop adversarily against our c m s which is to say like we went out of our way to make sure every drop of code is in github is as built <laughs> as part of a build process that goes through Jenkins and all of this stuff, and then gets deployed through scripts to the cms so that if the cms ever changed in theory we could you know still work involved but we could still inherently pick up what we have and bring it with us um and so but that's fair that is a fair point um the the bigger argument is this idea of in place, you know, just deciding we're going to mm. redesign stuff because we're tired of it or whatever. And yeah, the whole like homepage refresh right. thing that came up constantly. Always let's redesign the home, let's redesign the templates. Let's fix this. And it's a failure because in, if you do your web development correctly, you should just always be iterating. Yeah, You should always be in a cycle of improvement and measuring and adjusting. And It's very – It's. I joke about it um, with my coworkers. We are an agile shop, um, but we are, of course, like anybody, we are a flavor of agile. We are not purely agile because nobody is purely agile at this point. But we do try to approach that idea of let's build something and then iterate on it. Let's make it Mm -hmm. work, get it out the door, and then measure it and then improve upon it. Let's not try to be perfect out the gate. And let's not build it and then wait two years before we touch it again. Um, yeah, we're not great at that yet,
1: but we're we're trying. I was just thinking. I think almost every time that I was told we needed to do a homepage refresh, it involved adding a carousel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, if, if you have whatever your homepage may look like on your organizational site, like you probably have places that can have content swapped out, like images changed and maybe content modules replaced or whatever. And and I don't think that, that like that's fine. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. And I don't think it's what you're talking about either. Um, we're, we're talking about, like, gutting the template completely and then rebuilding it from from nothing. We're changing, entirely changing the style guide or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it comes back and let's, let's tie this all up with a neat little bow. Because when we go back mm-hmm. to last week's discussion or last episode's discussion on web components, the idea mm-hmm. is a good design system is organic and is constantly mm-hmm. growing and changing with you. So that while yeah. from today to next month, it's not different. But today to six months
1: from now, you could see different changes, different improvements. Adaptation. I, w- I would even extend that further with the talk about design philosophy earlier, that your design philosophy will kind of steer the growth of your design system. So, like, the design system would be the manifestation of that design philosophy. Yeah. Your, right. Your design
0: system should be a reflection of the evolution of your users. Because your users will get smarter over time and change over time. Mm. And their abilities and capabilities will change over time. My God, we're giving Instagram to chimps. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about putting the perfect bow on this subject, right?
1: I want to see more animals using Instagram. (laughs) I just, I want to see, like, which, like cluster these animals like can dolphins dolphins could probably use it if you gave them a way to interface with it i I would think so smart i want to know what other animals like i'm gonna get my hamster out and (laughs) we're gonna try using instagram
0: i've seen cats play the the ant game on iphones you know where they smash the ants (laughs) Uh, or frogs you see the one with the frog trying to eat the ants on the screen they they can they have perceptive uh, ability there (laughs) so i guess uh, that is clearly the end of this episode (laughs) at this point (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't think we can end it better than that. So, at any rate, look at design systems. Go look at uh, yeah. what you can do there and, and think about them that way because they are designed to be a growth mechanism for your organization. You should be able to evolve them and change oh. them and adapt them.
1: You know what? I I don't mean to bury the lead on this, but um, I learned about architectural design records today, ADR. Have you heard of I this I do before? not have a clue what
0: the hell you're talking about.
1: Okay, may- maybe we need to have another like maybe this deserves a lengthier discussion on an episode, but it is related to what we we're just talking about. So, it, like a design systems for the front end, right? Like you know HTML and CSS and onwards yeah. that layer. So the architectural design record is for the like the back end decision. Right. It's it's a kind of a log or historical archive of decisions that were made about your software architecture for your application or system. Sure. Um, There's a really cool uh, GitHub page that has a lot of like explanation about this. I just learned about it this morning. Um, It's really neat. I haven't read a lot about it, but maybe we could talk about it more in another episode because yeah, I think it's a really cool concept. It's that reminds
0: me. I had a conversation earlier today with some folks from a company that I think this sounds very similar, right? That. They are working with a company, it's a legacy company, so the, the company has been around for decades. And it's a large, publicly traded organization, um, and their consumer system, their, their, their customer system, their CRM, is yeah. DOS-based. Which, <laughs> oh I, in fairness, I've talked to folks who have had, like, Fortran-based systems that are still out there, or okay. uh, if anybody's ever used InfoBasic. Uh, I know a place where that is still in use. Right. They, they've got this DOS-based system that they have to run emulated uh, because not only is the company that built it out of business, but the companies that came in to support it after the fact are out of business. And so they're stuck trying now to figure out how to bridge the gap. Costco is a company that is in this position, actually. Um, Costco's like huh. inventory management system is all command line, DOS-based um it may not be DOS specifically but it is command line of some flavor but huh. but I, I can see immediately where you're going with that that idea of yeah. let's apply the design system to the development side so that we know why technology decisions were made and things like that
1: that's so the the main website that i mean at least from the discussion that i was in is adr.github.io and I'll, I'll add a link to the show notes, yeah, here. but yeah, um, do just yeah it's it's pretty cool, uh and I, I want to learn more about it, and I, I think that it it definitely I've been worked on far too many apps where I come into it and I'm told like oh man if you yeah, if you could document some stuff as you're learning it, that would be great because we don't have that <laughs>
0: yeah. so my my direction
1: to uh Aaron
0: this week is going to be to go figure out who the key contributor is to that repo. And we're gonna get them on the show. Uh, that's my goal. Into yeah. by, by the end of the year, we're gonna get that person on because um, that I'll see if I can find them. That, that, yeah, that would be really no. Awesome. That's very interesting, and it's something that just goes to show that we uh, we'd speak a little off the cuff here. Uh, that didn't come up in <laughs> in our our pre plan So uh, that's very cool, folks. Stick with us. Uh, we're gonna go to a break for just real quick. Uh, give you a little commercial, do that thing. Um, then we're gonna come back, and we're gonna wrap up and. So then we'll leave. Hell I don't know. No the Drunken UX podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Newcloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at nucloud.com/slash drunken ux. That's in youcloud.com slash drunken ux. Everybody, thanks for joining us this week on the Drunken UX podcast. Hey, if you have a topic that you'd like to hear us cover at some point, feel free to drop by the website, drunkenUX.com, click the contact link in the main navigation. And you can submit the form there, and if you want to hear us talk about something that's important to you, let us know. I'd love to hear uh, what you want to hear us. Drink scotch and vodka and uh, whatever else may be. I don't know.
1: Hey, Aaron, save me. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, you know that Twitter thing we are talking about yeah. earlier? We're, we're on there. Uh, Did you know occasionally. that?
0: Occasionally.
1: <laughs> it's twitter.com slash and ux more and more or...
0: unfortunately uh, i'm having to commit more
1: time to that it's uh, a <laughs> blessing and a curse uh, facebook.com slash drunken and, and then instagram where the chimps hang out all the chimps are our fans instagram.com slash and ux podcast and uh, oh and slack drunken slash slack all the places we are a, a popular bunch of people And
0: we love talking, mostly because we love hearing the sound of our own voice. Uh, I mean, I do anyway. Uh, (laughs) Folks, genuinely, thanks for tuning in this week. If you have anything you want to hear coming up, we've got a bunch of stuff coming up that you're going to want to tune in for, from uh, book reviews to interviews to guests and other topics. I promise you it'll be worth your time. Uh, Otherwise... I think I only have one thing left to say, and that's before May gets here. I guess uh, just keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. Later.